actual thing is. Okay, here we are, Vocal Fam. Hello. This is uh, honestly gonna be one of the most important episodes we've ever done. Normally we Very are cool. not a public health and science podcast. We are a, what are we? Who are we? Who, who is, what is this? Let me tell you who we are <laughs> right now. You're listening to the Vocal Fry Podcast, your weekly dash of voice science, pedagogy, and pop culture. Coming to you from the third formant, everyone's favorite buzzsaw. Vocal Fam. Sarah and I just recorded an episode. Yep. With with Dr. John Vulcans, professor of how did he say it? Oh gosh. Mechanical he, engineering, envir- environmental, environmental engineering. engineering, but he's in the mechanical engineering department. But he's currently he actually was also like a degree in public, public health. health. Environmental engineering. Yeah, environmental engineering under public health. Often working on things like air pollution. Except as most of us have transitioned to working on something with COVID. Yeah, (laughs) where we are the air pollution. Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations, human race. You've become a super emitter. (laughs) You've done it. (laughs) Um, But uh, what a thrill to have Dr. Vulcans on. You had sort Mm -hmm. of heard it previewed with our episode with Alan Henderson Alan, yeah, yeah. two weeks ago. And uh, today we were we are super, super excited to play this episode. Uh, we, what he really gets into is sort of a, I guess a, a setup of why bioaerosols are dangerous. Yeah, yeah, that was good to, to know and sort of going into really how diseases like COVID, like the flu, flu, like a cold are spread and sort of dispelling some of the myths that go along with that generally. Um, I liked just kind of some of his points on efficacy of different kinds of masks, tips on like how to know if your mask is really any good and so if you're not familiar (laughs) he is heading up the study on the aerosols and the performing arts at colorado Mm -hmm. state university and that that study is being sponsored by a lot of people a whole ton of performing arts organizations all over this country including the national association of teachers of singing one of the sponsors of this podcast one of our partners Mm -hmm. and uh to have dr vulcans on to bring some hard science and they're still in a way, early on in their project. Yes, yes. Uh, I, they've only released some very preliminary findings. But they're almost halfway, and he does tell us here on the show that, that in about three weeks, they're going to have an update. Mm-hmm. And then hoping to have even more. And hoping to have their data collection finished to be able to make some more, what did he call them, recommendations for best practices or something? Yeah, I think that was sort of his thing, was recommendations. By January. Really just more about how best to mitigate like what is the factor you can 
reduce the risk by. You know, also are you reducing love, risk by a factor of two, by four. By eight, yes. Uh, yeah. Also love that he brings up, um, that he introduced it and then I echoed it, just the idea of difference again, just saying it on the podcast, the difference between risk elimination and risk mitigation. Yeah, and making those, it is that, that it's choices we're all having to make and that we make in so many different ways every day, you know? Correct. Do I get in my car? Do I not get in my car? Do I get in my car and buckle my seatbelt? Or do you do like my grandpa used to do where he would buckle the seatbelt and then sit on it? Don't be that person. Who does uh, that? My grandfather did. Um, that's, I've literally never heard of such a thing. So he lived in like one, a super small town like little bitty at real rural Mississippi. And he did not like buckling his seatbelt. Um, obviously, Amazing. but he hated the dinging noise that they introduced into cars to, you know, make you put your seatbelt on. And so he would buckle it and then sit on top of it. Actually, I'm not sure he ever unbuckled it wow. for that matter. Well, he just was buckled. Vocal fam, enough of us <laughs> goofballs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's get on to the real part of the episode with Dr. John Vulcans. Thanks for being here, Vocal Fam. Have a great week. Yes. Yes. How about now? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Hello, Dr. Vulcans. Oh, call me John, please. Okay, we'll 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 do. Glad you found the link. Um, yeah, thanks for sending it. Perfect. No, no problem. Well, John, uh, thank you for make, cutting some time out for Sarah and I. Um, mm -hmm. We are the co-hosts of, of the Vocal Fry podcast and a partner with, with Nats, with, with Nats Cast. Um, and thank you for carving out some time for us. We appreciate your time. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so let's just dive right in since we have a limited amount of time. Tell us about how you got involved in this project, a little bit maybe about your background so that the vocal fam knows who you are, but but then how did you get involved in this masks project? Sure, so a little bit about my background. Uh, I call myself a public health engineer. Excellent. My training is in environmental engineering, but it was in a school of public health, one of the only schools of public health in the country actually that has an engineering department. Fascinating. Yeah, and when you think about it, it makes more sense because if I asked you what were some of the greatest public health discoveries of the past century, uh, and I can ask you that, and I you mean, might answer. I, I'd think of I'd the discovery just... of the AIDS of, of HIV or or something yep. of this nature. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Vaccine, vaccines. Things right? like vaccines. that. That's uh, that's where my brain went. I was like, vaccines. I yeah. hope is the answer. <laughs> There's no right answer, but that's a common answer. But if I retorted, okay, how many lives has the seatbelt saved? Oh, uh, yeah. millions. How many lives? I mean, why do we have refrigerators? And how many lives has that <laughs> saved? Because people don't get sick from botulism or bad food, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. How many lives has chlorinated drinking water saved? Oh, yeah. yeah. So uh, all of those, or the catalytic converter or the air filter on a diesel truck, I mean, all of those are engineering discoveries that have had profound impact on public health. Sure. So, so engineers do have a lot to contribute to public health. There aren't many of us, unfortunately, and I always love the chance to advocate for more people <laughs> getting into this discipline. But I'm an engineer who was trained in public health. I'm now in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at Colorado State University. Yep. So I'm, I'm kind of moonlighting. Uh, I'm impersonating a mechanical engineer, but a lot of what I do is related to mechanical engineering. And so I have a good home here. Uh, and I'm an aerosol scientist by training, which is a, a very nerdy discipline. I study particles in air. 
but it's a super fun discipline because it is so wide ranging. Uh, why do I study particles in air? Because particles in air are one of the number one causes of premature disease and death on the planet. Sure. It's air pollution that I study. And so if you've been overseas, you know, pre-March, hopefully, uh, <laughs> you know, to somewhere like Asia, you've experienced bad air pollution firsthand. And China. China in 2001 for me was terrible. Yeah, everyone And everyone tells kind of the same story, right? I got sick. Yep. Uh, I, my, my voice changed. My eyes hurt. I felt like I got the flu or the cold. Yep. And it was really just a massive dose of air pollution that your body wasn't used to. And so people have been studying air pollution more and more over the last few decades because it's so bad in many parts of the world. And the more we study it, the more we find out that it's bad for you everywhere. Air pollution is one of the number one contributors to heart disease, to lung cancer, to dementia. Uh, it's the number one environmental determinant of autism in children. Oh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's scary and fascinating, right? Because the more we study air pollution, it harms our bodies in every possible way. And that's because we can inhale these little particles, they can get into our blood, and once they get into our blood, they go to every organ. And so they can affect our brains, our hearts, our kidneys, our livers, our stomachs, and it goes on and on. And so um, air pollution is one of the top 10, top 10 leading risk factors for premature disease and death on the planet. And I'm talking, it's up there with things like obesity, Mm -hmm. High blood pressure. Uh, what are some other ones? Uh, um, uh, malnourishment, right? A poor diet. Like we know those things will, will sure. shorten your lifespan. Right. And air pollution is up there with those because because it, it's slow to make its effect, but it but you can't choose the air you breathe, and you are always taking air into your body. And so, I study air pollution for that reason. Um, I study particles because particulate air pollution. Whenever you burn something, you see smoke. Whenever you drive your car, an exhaust comes out. You're making particles that go into the atmosphere. And we inhale those particles, and they, they harm our bodies over our lifetime. It's much like smoking. We know smoking is bad for you, right? I mean, sure. that's the massive dose. But it turns out that we're all kind of smoking a little bit. We're smoking the exhaust of all the energy we consume across the planet. Nowadays, um, I study human exposure to particles. And after COVID hit, like many people, I found myself having discussions with colleagues about, well, what is going on here? You know, why, what do we know and what do we don't know? And of course, uh, I, I quickly got connected to folks at the CSU, Colorado State University School of Music, Theater and Dance. And they explained to me, look, we are completely shut down by this and we do not know what to do. We've known for a long time that the flu or the common cold can be transmitted in air. Right. Mm -hmm. Most of the dogma around transmission, though, has been, oh, it happens when you touch your hands to your eyes or touch your hands to your mouth and you've got something dirty on your hands. Turns out we had that wrong for the last 100 years, and we're just finding that out now. The most common way that we transmit those is by close contact talking to each other and essentially breathing little particles out of our body or spitting them out of our mouth when we talk or out of our vocal cords onto the person in front of us and they either hit their mouth, their eyes, or they get inhaled. Those are part, that's a particle-borne transmission of the infectious disease. And it's extremely common for things like the cold and the flu. It's extremely uncommon for things like Ebola and, and many other infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. But for the flu, we've discovered in the last year that, oh, it's really common, and a lot more so than we realized. That's not to say that you can't touch 
a, a handrail that someone sneezed on and then touch your mouth or your eyes and give yourself, you know, whatever they were carrying, that absolutely can happen. Sure. But it turns out that we found out that airborne transmission is a major mode for COVID-19 and the flu in general. So how do we study more about these little particles that come out of our body and go into someone else's body? Our knowledge on that topic has exploded in the last six months, but there are not many people who study particles in air and study human health. I mean, there on are- On the planet. On the planet. Right. We, we probably graduate in the field of aerosol physics, you know, one to 5,000 PhDs on the planet per year. And maybe 5% of those go into academic research. And maybe 5% of those study bioaerosols, the you know, aerosols from human so we are or not, living matter. not talking about a great field of current research. Oh, no, and I wouldn't even count myself as one of the leading bioaerosol scientists in the U.S. I'm just an aerosol scientist who got sucked into COVID like everybody else. Sure. There are probably there are probably five or six people in the country who are really qualified, you know, who were qualified in March to talk about this right. issue. But I am a public health engineer. I um, have studied the human body extensively. I um, at one point almost went back for a full master's degree in, in biochemistry and physiology wow. to just learn more about the human body since I was approaching it from an engineering standpoint. Uh, so I, I'm at least conversant in many of the things that go on um, with, the, with, with COVID and infectious disease. And I understand how cells work and human physiology works and how particles deposit in our lungs and where they deposit and where they go and what they do. Mm-hmm. So I at least felt comfortable enough to say, yes, I can probably help you when people came to me and said, we need to understand what comes out of instruments, what comes out of the body when we sing or play music so that we can protect ourselves and get back to doing what we love. When I said that in April of this year, I uh, was a little naive how, how long of a road that would put me on. Right. But now we're here today and we're running a major study at Colorado State on characterizing emissions from people in the performing arts, yep. bioaerosol emissions. And the reason we started there, as I said, uh, when Dan Goble, he's the director of the CSU School of Music, Theater and Dance came to me, he said, John, we don't even know what to do. We don't even know, you know, it seems like people are selling a snake oil, but everyone's freaked out and nobody knows what to do, how to protect themselves. And I said, well, let me do a little digging on, on what we know about what comes out of the body. And there's been quite a bit of research showing that even when we breathe, particles come out of our body. Right. When we talk, more particles come out. When we sing or shout, more particles come out. So there's a plausible route for these sorts of activities to release particles into the environment that could be potentially infectious. And then, of course, around that same time, there were anecdotal reports of super spreading events at things like choirs or confined indoor right. spaces. Right? Skagit so, Valley and, and, and others, yes. Yeah, so all of those sorts of pieces were falling into play to at least, these weren't causal events, these don't prove anything, Mm -hmm. but they're sure anecdotal and they make you scratch your head and want to look look deeper into it. So there there was pretty good evidence that human beings could emit particles. And of course, those particles come from your throat and your lungs. Mm -hmm. Your lungs, when you look at them on the inside, if you've ever like pulled up a carrot and you see all the root stem on that carrot, it's kind of a complicated, you know, uh, system. Your lungs are like that on steroids because your lungs go from one central tube to something like more than a million tubes. So if you could imagine that carrot stem, the root carrot, 
continually spreading out until there's um, there's a million of those little root fibers. That's what your lungs look like on the inside. All of that surface area, uh, those little those little tubes can collapse when you breathe in and out, and it's very much like playing an instrument, right? You know when you when you suck in, something can collapse. When you breathe out, it opens up. Your lungs do that physically, and the little tubes where air gets delivered to deep into your lungs, they collapse and come apart. Yep. They're wet. When that collapsing tube comes apart, it can emit a particle. And so you have a million little particle generators inside your body that can make a particle with every breath you take. When you sing or talk, your vocal cords vibrate. And anything that vibrates at high enough frequency or high or large enough amplitude has more energy to fling off particles. Right. So for all those reasons, particles can come out of the body. What we had no idea was what can come out of a musical instrument when someone's playing it. But there was anecdotal evidence there. And the more I learned about playing instruments, and I'm not a, a musician, I, like most uh, hopeless romantics, I played guitar all through college. <laughs> that was for a different sure. reason, not to get into a band. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, so that was really the only instrument that I had any familiarity with. Um, and, it, and actually, one, only one of my six choices for uh, electives was music theory which I barely passed, but I loved it uh, in college. And so I am, <laughs> I do consider myself a, a patron or, or someone who loves the arts, not a participant though. Um, so what we, you know, what, what I could find on instruments and their emissions was almost nothing. I found one study that showed that Vuvuzela, is that how you pronounce it? The, those stupid yeah, horns yeah. that they played at the World Cup like Real eight years wild. ago? Yeah, they sound like a swarm of bees. Yes. Yep. Uh, I think it's a South African instrument. Someone had put an aerosol instrument, an aerosol monitoring device in front of one of those and reported that these things were like massive generators of particles because they vibrate. Mm -hmm. You blow on them constantly and yep. spit comes out of your mouth, flows into the instrument, and then it gets vibrated out. Yeah. Okay. So for musicians out there or, um, you know, you spit comes out of your mouth and it vibrates like many of all the woodwind instruments can typically fall into that category. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I told Dan, all right, we probably need to do a study to begin just to characterize emissions yep. because we can't start looking at solutions until we know the extent of the problem, which instruments are worse. Does it happen more with men or women? Does it happen more with kids? Maybe kids are safe and kids can play instruments, but adults can't or vice versa. We had no idea. And so I, I articulated the design of a study whereby I think we could contribute knowledge to the community, at least on what's coming out of instruments and the human body for that matter. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to enroll singers as well. In fact, everyone who enters the study sings for us. And then I proposed, okay, but we can do in parallel, we can probably try some control technologies. Like what if you sing with a mask on? And what if you play an instrument with a bell cover on or, or other things that anything, you know, I basically said to Dan, anything you can dream up, we can test. But the only thing I'll limit you is that each person that comes in can probably only do four or five things because it's going to take an hour or two per person. Right. We can do one to two people per day. And it's going to take then three months to do the study start to finish. Um, and, and, and so Dan was great. We put together a scientific advisory board and we started to dream up ideas. And then the last thing I told Dan was, look, none of this is going to be cheap. Uh, this is expensive research because essentially we have a human exposure facility at Colorado State University. Imagine a big walk-in freezer that is hermetically sealed where we can study the body's reaction to air pollution. 
that sounds creepy uh, on the forefront, and, if, and it is, right? I mean, you know, we, we have permission to actually expose people to air pollution in my lab. These are extremely low quantities, though. It would be like um, going jogging next to the highway. That's the kind of doses that people will get. Sure. And as an aside, for anyone who likes to run, please stop running at rush hour on the roads in the highway. You're doing more harm to your body than good. Oh. Uh, that's my public service announcement oh, as an air wow. pollution engineer. But um, oh. let's come let's come back to this to the chamber. I need to rethink um, my running schedule. Absolutely, you do, uh, and I can I can prove it to you with a quick lecture and, and show you basically how many cigarettes you're smoking per week because you're running next to diesel traffic. But um, so the, the chamber that we have is, is a controlled environment where we can make air pollution at known levels. For this study, we did exactly the opposite. It was a controlled environment that we could make clean and we had people come in and they made their version of pollution and we could measure then the pollution coming out of the body. So we have a pristine chamber that we can flush with particle-free air so that there are no particles in there. And if a person goes in and starts doing singing or music playing activities, the particles we measure in that environment are coming strictly from them. And Vocal Fam, if you want to see those pictures of the chamber, they are on our social media, both on Facebook and Instagram of, of Alan when he, was, when he was a subject. Anyway, going on. So, and, and Alan, of course, is one of our uh, one of the members of our scientific advisory board. You know, as I said, I'm I'm an engineer and I'm a dilettante in this area. So when we started the study, hey, vocal fam, super sorry, we had a really quick internet disruption, and uh, we resolved it rather quickly. We just missed about thirty seconds of Dr. Vulcan's telling us a little bit more of where he was in the discussion but I promise we hop right back in. So sorry, just had a brief internet drop. Here we go back to it. Musical instruments and we want everyone to sing. Uh, we wanna do it with masks on and masks off and we wanna do it maybe with bell covers on and bell covers off. And so that last sentence I described to you has basically been the last three months of our lives, bringing people into our chamber, having them uh, run through a litany of, we call them like singing happy birthday with a mask on or a mask off, or playing uh, scales on your instrument, either with control technology on or off. Or then we have a freestyle, which is, you know, play, do what you do best, play your favorite thing and kind of go for it. And we just let whatever happens at that last session happen so that we can get kind of a real world picture of what an instrument might be emitting or what a singer might be emitting when they're doing their, their, their personal art. And we have, you know, Children come in, we've had singers from the Met come in. Uh, we have all ranges of talents and skills. And so we wanna let people do exactly what they do best because that's kind of the real world. So for all of that, we measure the particles, the, the, both the size and concentration of particles that come out of their bodies, specifically out of their respiratory tract, mm -hmm. when they are performing their art. And then of course we can look at well, for this one person, did they emit a lot of particles when they were singing? What about when they put the mask on? What was the reduction in particle count? When you do that with one person, you get an idea of what the reduction is. But we know that there is wide variation in the amount of particles that come out of a given body to, to the next body, to the next person. Why is that? We don't actually know the reasons for it yet. But we do know that there is almost a factor of a hundred difference. If you took a hundred people off the street and asked them to sing happy birthday, 
the relative concentrations of particles from person one to a hundred would vary by a factor of a hundred. Oh, wow. so it's not like it's not like person A emits ten particles per second and person B emits twelve particles per second. It's like person A emits ten particles per second and person B emits a thousand particles per second. Massive variation, what Golly. we call log normal variation. Yeah, because uh, it's a logarithm function, right? It's not plus or minus differences, it's multiplier differences. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I knew that because I looked at the existing data on human emissions. And so I told Dan, look, we can't do a study where we study four people. Because if oh, those four people are all low emitters and we miss, we miss the thousand per particle per second em emitter, we won't be able to understand if a mask on that person is effective. Mm -hmm. And so I told him we needed to study 100 people. Um, to get the sample size necessary so that we could make inference or conclusions about yep. the data that were defendable. Yep. And that's why the study's taken a while because we are bringing so many people through. And in, in my mind, this was the right call because we've been running this study now for a few months. We've had about 35 or 40 people come through. We're almost at the halfway point. And we definitely see that log normal variation where for some reason or another, uh, trombonist A emits particles way, way, way higher than trombonist B, and and singer A emits more particles than singer B. We're, we have some theories, you know, potentially on, on what could be behind that, but we're still collecting data that we need to analyze it and figure it out. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, I mean, that's that's incredible. I mean, so I you, you mentioned that you're using the masks as a control. Mm -hmm. Are you using different types of masks or? Yeah, good question. So when we started the study, uh, my lab also tests masks, their, their efficiency for the state of Colorado. So the, like every other state, early on in the pandemic, the state realized we are going to run out of N95 masks right. for our healthcare uh, frontline people real quick. What are we going to do? Yeah. And it became clear that there weren't going to be any N95s available by the end of March. Yep. And so the, the governor had a task force, and the task force asked my lab, look, we're going to be buying masks in the million quantities from China. We have no idea if they're going to be good. They're telling us they're good, but we don't know because right. we're using unknown. I mean, it was the Wild West, right? And there was mm -hmm. price gouging and yeah. you name it. And we all, as, as consumers, of course, we experienced some of this too ourselves. Yeah. Uh, and there's still a lot of confusion out there on masks. So uh, I, I've been testing masks for the state of Colorado for a long time. And when I designed the study with, with Dan and Al, and I originally said, you know what, let's have people uh, use N95s as the mask of choice because that's the best available technology out there. And when we got closer to starting the study, I thought, you know, that's a stupid idea because no one can get an N95. Yeah. And if, if you can't get one, what's the purpose of me telling the world that N95s work when no one can get one? Right. And so I completely reversed course and said, you know what we should do? We should just have people bring whatever their day mask is in and mm -hmm. sing with their own personal day mask. And then they're going to donate that mask to us. We put it in a plastic bag for two weeks so that any nasties on the, on the sure. mask could, could fade away. Die. And then we're going to test it in the lab so that we will have information not only on the person and their emission of particles when they're singing with a mask on, but we're going to be able to test the efficacy of that mask in our lab and potentially tie back mask performance to emissions for singers when they're singing with a mask on. Fantastic. Because you're having everybody sing happy birthday. Yeah, that's right. Whether and they're a getting, singer, instrumentalist, whatever. 
That's right. And we're getting everybody's mask. And so we're going to get, not only are we going to get a hundred different people of different ages, we're going to get a hundred different masks of different designs and styles. So we're really sampling from the wild, which is perfect in my mind. Yes. Because it, when this study is done, I can tell people, look, we tested a hundred real world masks and it, here's the average reduction in emissions for a typical mask on a typical person. And that's what I want to get to because that's the most useful information. That's I don't want to end the study and say, you all need to buy a mask that you can't get. Because what's yeah. the, where's, how is that helpful? Right. And so, and so we've been doing that and we're testing those masks. I can tell you that masks work. I mean, that's without a doubt, masks work. Mm-hmm. What I can't tell you yet is how well they work because there's a diversity uh, of measurements we're doing. And the other thing is, um, Masks are really interesting because they divert the flow in different ways than when you normally sing or talk. Mm-hmm. When you sing or talk and project your voice, you create kind of a little stream of air, you know, like a like an elongated trumpet of air coming out of your body. Right. Mm-hmm. I can travel about six feet. I mean, the six foot rule, I don't think they actually based it on <laughs> fluid dynamics, but it's true that at about six feet, a lot of the emissions of your body tend to disperse. And so you can't get that jet of air that someone's speaking um, at you, and that's why, honestly, like close talking is the worst thing, right? I mean, sure. we've all experienced that, where you've been in a crowded bar potentially, and it's loud, and you're shouting at each other, and you're two feet away from someone, and all of a sudden you feel like you need windshield wipers for the conversation because the person is, you know, kind of shouting at you. <laughs> that would depend on who I'm having the conversation with. It does depend on it, right? Because the emissions depend on the person, and so that's the sort of close close contact that's really bad for potentially for COVID. Masks do stop all of that. And so they're really effective at that close range transmission, but masks are not perfect. And I can tell you that most masks that I see out in the wild, as I call it, um, do not stop all the particles coming out of the body. And that's because they're just not designed like an N95 is designed. They don't seal perfectly around your face. Yeah. So here's a, here's a fun test for everyone to do who's, who's listening. Take your favorite mask, go into, um, you know, go find a mirror in your house, Turn the light, face the mirror, and breathe out really quickly. Like take a big breath and like blow out a candle kind of breath into your mask. Okay. And tell your and, and look at your eyes and, and find out whether or not you blink. Okay? And, and, you know, take your mask off and blow out air. And you're not going to blink, right? So when you blow out air and there's nothing covering your mouth, you don't blink. When you put a mask on and you blow out air, you blink. And the reason is because most of the air doesn't go through the mask. It goes up your cheekbones, around your nose, and into your eyes. And your eyes have a self-protective mechanism, which is like, whoa, jet of air, time to blink. You know, we need to stay moist. And so most masks don't stop all of the air coming out of your body. And the smallest particles that come out of your body can get around the mask. So we know that masks are really effective because they stop a lot of particles, but they don't stop all the particles. And the other interesting thing, though, that masks do is that they don't let the jet of air propagate away from your body. The jet of air actually goes around your head and behind you. (laughs) So when you're on like an airplane, it's probably the person in the seat in front of you you're worried about. Because if they're breathing hard, it's going to be the air coming around their head towards you. And there have been some interesting visualizations that absolutely show that the porous masks, when you breathe out, that air shoots up your your cheekbones and over your head and almost backwards. Mm -hmm. So we're studying that right now. And we're finding that the masks definitely work, but they don't work perfectly. Um, When you look at an N95, though, they are shaped almost like a duckbill because they conform Mm -hmm. to the face better. And they have a really strong nose bridge 
that um, you know can go above your cheekbones. When you take an N95 off, if you've worn it for an hour or two, you have like that ring around your face, you know, like um, like a suction cup ring or something, you know. When you take off a cloth mask, you never have that ring because the cloth masks don't make a good seal onto your face. Anybody who's ever hung drywall and then uh, done mm-hmm. the the mudding of the drywall, I, we've remodeled our home a number of years ago, and believe me, once you wear that N95 all day, it's a solid ring around your exactly face. Right. That's right. right. And, and that's and that's the funny thing is that. I mean, what, what I wish would happen is that the N95 manufacturers would just release to the maker community, look, everybody, here's how you do it. Because the materials for making N95s are not rocket science, and a lot of them are available in bulk, just not in N95 form. And there are probably designs out there where the maker community could make these N95-style masks that fit your face better with materials that may not be 99% efficient, but if they're 90% efficient, that's, that's a, probably yeah. great. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, we're finding that masks are probably a factor of two efficient at emissions. So they cut emissions down by maybe, you know, they cut emissions in half or by, you know, by a factor of four. But of course, if you're wearing a mask and the other person across the room is wearing a mask, you're cutting down emissions by a factor of four, but then you're also cutting down what gets into the mask because it filters two ways. And so you're cutting down risk by a factor of eight or 10. So when everybody wears a mask, everybody wins. That's right. That, that's a man that's a thank you for that line right there um so what's your i mean i i, I want to respect your time here but just um what's your sort of timetable how long do you think you're still out from maybe data collection being complete you know what's your timetable yes we um the study is you know it's research and we we know we're both researchers as well we so we understand feel that. yeah so it's you know research you're doing it for the first time right which means you're not going to do it right and you're going to make mistakes, and you're going to learn as you go. And we've been doing that. Sarah, we've made mistakes before? Gosh. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yes. Yeah. And so um, we we started slowly. We had kind of a discovery phase early in the project where it's like, let's just play around. Let's bring Dan in or Alan in and just have them ad nauseum repeat you know, maneuvers <laughs> in the chamber so we get the measurements right. We're at that point now. We have the measurements right. But then, of course, I live in Fort Collins, Colorado, which has been in the news in the last few weeks Fire. because our forests are burning down. Yeah. Right. And so the problem with forest fires, besides the fact that they pollute the air and burn down beautiful forest land, mm-hmm. is that they put particles into the air at really high concentrations. And our instrumentation cannot differentiate a forest fire particle, smoke particle, from a human body emitted particle. So we've had we've had really really high levels of pollution in Fort Collins for about six weeks, and on a several days that's kind of shut our study down because we can't make the chamber clean enough. Oh. Um, and and you know the the chamber can make the air a hundred times cleaner than it is outside, mm-hmm. but if the air on that day is a hundred times worse than it was the day before, it becomes really noisy to collect quality data. And the the problem with having a forest fire nearby is that the smoke plumes are still concentrated. And so is the wind pattern shift. I mean, we've literally gone from like the worst day in Beijing a year ago to back to pristine. You can see a hundred miles in Colorado in like 90 minutes because the wind will just, the wind direction will shift. And all of a sudden the plume is not being blown into the town. It's, it's, it's wonderful for those 90 minutes. You can be like, oh, I can go outside for the first yeah. time in three days. Right. But then for your measurement data, it's like, well, what do I trust? And how do I know mm. if I'm counting the right particles? So we've been slowed down by the wildfires. 
but we're making good progress. And I, I would say our timetable is we'll, we hope to finish our data collection before the holiday break, before the December break. And we will likely have a update maybe three weeks from today. Oh, okay, we had great. an update early in, I think early mid-August, we had an update where I said, hey, we're, we're seeing some data, you know, here's some data, but I didn't give any conclusions. Uh, yep. I would say that by our November update, we will likely have some uh, some leaning recommendations of here's what we see works and doesn't work. You know, here, here's what we've learned. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably a better way to phrase it. Here's what we've learned. Yep. Uh, and then I would say my hope is that in January we will have here are some recommendations we can make because we've awesome. crunched the numbers and here's what we think you can do. And then maybe a month later we might go as far as to hope to say, I think here's the risk reduction you're going to see by doing this or doing that, right? We're never going to be able to tell people this activity is perfectly safe, right? That's a point we've been making on the podcast for months is we need to be very clear about the difference between the words of risk elimination and risk mitigation. Absolutely, right? You know, um, do you, you know, have you ever ridden a bicycle without a helmet or will you always wear a helmet when you ride a bicycle? I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer there, but people have different risk profiles. Mm -hmm. And so some of us still wash our groceries. Some of us, you know, might wear, um, uh, you know, might wear gloves everywhere outside. Other ones are like, you know what, I'm going to go eat in a restaurant. I'm going to, you know, I I think it's going to be safe. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but those are different risk profiles Mm -hmm. and risk behaviors. And so I will never be able to say this is safe, but I will, I hope to be able to say this will, you know, if you do this, this should lower your risk by this, you know, a factor of four or a factor of 10. And those are the sorts of decisions we need to get comfortable making. I know that it's uncomfortable for many people to think that way, but we do it in our lives every day. If you go water skiing or you go downhill skiing uh, or you get on an airplane, you know, uh, you're you're making, yeah, you get in a car, you're making a decision about that. And so, um, we, we engage in risky behavior all the time. You sure. Know, you have that third glass of wine, you know. It's, right. You're going to pay for it the next day. You, <laughs> you know, your, your judgment may be a little impaired, but you, you're, you know, am I, am I going to be good enough when I teach tomorrow? Sure, I'll be fine. Or, you know what, this is not a good idea because I won't be at my best tomorrow. I'm not going to have that glass of wine. So those are, you know, risk-reward decisions we make all the time. Still would not recommend Focal Fam taking a muscle relaxer right before you give a graduate lecture to a graduate class. Sarah can tell you a story about that. I've done that twice in my life. Won't hopefully ever repeat. Anyway, uh, John, before you go, we are a mostly voice science and pedagogy and very small portion sometimes or larger others uh, (laughs) nerd pop culture podcast. uh, normally we ask what we've been asking people during COVID though is have you had any other activities outside of your normal research or normal academic life uh, that have been bringing you joy that have been you know maybe a, a diversion from sort of the the all the things that are going on in 2020 anything that's been bringing you joy in your life that you do it could be a book series you've been reading a podcast you listen to a movie you've loved a- anything oh great question well honestly um I've been an academic researcher now for the better part of two decades. And the, you know, academics love to think that they're so impactful and that, you know, they're, <laughs> what do they're you so mean? important. And, um, you know, I love what I do. And I think my impact does come through my students and the careers that they have after they, they leave my lab. But I will say this project that we've been doing on the performing arts has been super impactful because 
we are reaching stakeholders with our research immediately and we have stakeholders engaged and and to think about the performing arts industry that's essentially been shut down and to know that the information we're going to generate is going to be translated immediately into decisions and actions by people that hopefully will help them that's been extremely rewarding as an air pollution scientist who tries to prevent people from getting heart disease over 40 years of their life it's a lot different when you can say we're doing this work and in three months you may be able to go back to work if you follow these practices mm -hmm. and and to know the joy that that would bring people is is really rewarding that's that's awesome yeah Man, well, we've been sort of, my research team has been on the other side of all this for musicians. We've been doing all the work on exploring low latency platforms and actually collaborating in real time over the internet. Uh, so we've sort of been on the other end of, of the musical spectrum, but uh, it has been rewarding, actually, the work we've done this year in 2020 uh, on that front. So thank you for that, too. Um, thank you so much for carving out some time for us. This has been a real treat uh, mm -hmm. and um, just super honored and, and thankful for you sharing this information. So I guess just if you could summarize, masks are better than no masks. <laughs> That's a sort of generalization right now. Yep. And, uh, you know, outdoors is better than indoors. Tighter fit of yeah. mask is better than a looser fit. Yeah. The blink test, you know, find a mask that you can pass the blink test on, or at least, okay. you know, you know, some version of the blink test. Uh, it's a really, it's a really effective test. If you can breathe through a mask and not blink, uh, you've got a good mask on your face. And I, I've done this with an N95 because the state did have some N95s they wanted us to test. So I, this is how I arrived at the blink test is I put on an N95 and breathed out hard and I could keep my eyes open. And then I put on, you know, a series of masks that were donated to me or given to us and not a single one could I prevent myself from blinking. So, um, and for mask designers out there, you know, work on that nose bridge, right? And, and, find some N95s out there if you can and just learn from them because it's not rocket science. Sure. You know? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. John Vulcans, uh, yes, professor at Colorado State University working on all this, trying to help us all live healthier lives. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate uh, Nick it. Nick and Sarah, you're, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Oh, it was great to have you. Thanks. Yeah, Thanks for being on Vulcan Friday. Good to meet Friday. you. Okay. Take care. Talk to you again. Bye.